look at kpfk.org and join there. Thank you. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. The time now is 6 p.m. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Good evening. It's February 23rd, and for tonight's Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, Alabama says embryos are babies. LA for Assange, Day X Solidarity. LA gets stuck with graffiti tower cleanup. Arizona moves to ban UBI, Marcy Winograd from Santa Barbara, Don DeBar with disappointment for Gaza, and Paulina Vasiliev brings us non-NATO news. All this and more coming up for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. I'm Hal Lore. This week, the ultra-conservative Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos, even frozen ones, are children, opening a fresh can of worms in America's Christo-fascist battle to promote fetal rights and subjugate women by chaining their reproductive rights as the ruling jeopardizes future access to in vitro fertilization and sets up the inevitable Supreme Court fight over when human life and human rights begin and giving the Democratic Party new fuel for their efforts to center abortion access in the presidential election and forcing Republicans to backpedal on the link between fertility, abortion, religion, and medical science. Democrats and left-leaning interest groups have banked on abortion rights as a major motivator for voters in the upcoming presidential election and fights for control of Congress. They believe abortion can be a winning issue as the debate widens to include increasing concerns over miscarriage care, access to medication, access to emergency care, and now IVF treatments. Meanwhile, the GOP has struggled while abortion rights candidates have won races, even in red states. Biden issued a statement Thursday that called the Alabama decision a direct result of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and Vice President Kamala Harris stated the obvious when she accused Republicans of hypocrisy, saying, So on the one hand, the proponents are saying that an individual doesn't have a right to end an unwanted pregnancy, and on the other hand, the individual does not have a right to start a family. And one must then ask, well, okay, how did this happen? And I would say, ask who's to blame. The all-Republican Alabama Supreme Court ruled Wednesday that frozen embryos created through IVF are considered children under state law, potentially exposing families and clinics to criminal charges or punitive damages. In response, the state's largest hospital and at least two other providers have temporarily canceled IVF treatments as they scramble to assess the ruling's impact. On the campaign trail, Trump did not speak publicly about the ruling resisting calls from anti-abortion advocates to support a national ban because he says it would be unpopular with the general public, even though a news report cites Trump's support for a 16-week ban. Former UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, Trump's last major primary challenger, sided with the Alabama Supreme Court in a Wednesday interview with NBC News saying this... I didn't say that I agreed with the Alabama ruling. What the question that I was asked is, do I believe an embryo is a baby? I do think that if you look in the definition, an embryo is considered an unborn baby. And so, yes, I believe from my stance that that is. This case was based on and should be based on the rights of those parents for their embryos and to make sure that they have the responsibility with the doctors on how those are handled. 
The problem is, legislation and court rulings defining life as beginning at fertilization or that give embryos legal rights not only have ramifications for abortion issues when they limit parts of the IVF process, including the removal of embryos that fail to implant in the uterus or the disposal of unused embryos. Fertility doctors have been raising alarm bells over the risk of losing IVF access since Roe v. Wade was overturned, as many patients frantically moved frozen embryos to places like California with more protective abortion laws, a process that comes with increased cost, complexity, and risk of damage to embryos the Alabama ruling was supposed to be designed to protect. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In L.A. Activism News this week, L.A. for Assange joined the Global Day X action to bring awareness to the extradition hearings of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange in the London High Court and to demand that the U.K. hashtag free Assange. Supporters of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange gathered for two nights this week at the New Highland Park L.A. for Assange HQ for Day X Solidarity events on February 20th and 21st. Supported by Code Pink and Assange Defense, activists prepared postcards to send to Congress urging them to support House Resolution 934 to free Julian Assange and to support press freedom. They also held a 25-foot-long banner in a high-visibility area of Los Angeles to show their support for hashtag no extradition, rode in a free Assange car caravan, made and passed out hundreds of Assange buttons, and followed the virtual Day X events being streamed globally out of London. H.R. 934, which states that regular journalistic activities are protected under the First Amendment and calls to drop all charges on Assange, is currently being spearheaded by Republican members of Congress. So far, only two local Democratic clubs have voted to endorse it. On February 15th, Democrats of Pasadena Foothills and on January 28th, Feel the Burn Democratic Club of L.A. County. Code Pink member Melanie Cohen, who helped organize the L.A. for Assange actions, described key developments in the Assange case, the nature of Assange's interactions with Chelsea Manning, where Cohen explains that two Supreme Judges on the London High Court this week asked for information on the Chelsea Manning case. I quote, because the prosecution has stated their case, and the crux of the case is that Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange stole the documents and put them up on WikiLeaks and into the public's hands. What Julian Assange is saying is that it was Chelsea Manning, and as we know, Chelsea Manning was prosecuted, did her prison time, and is living her life now free, while Julian Assange is still wasting away in a maximum security prison for no other reason than printing and releasing the WikiLeaks information. The L.A. for Assange coalition will continue to keep pressure up and continue to educate the public and lawmakers alike on the injustice of the case against Julian Assange. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. It was hardly news in the modern housing crisis that a Hong Kong-based firm that started to build a massive tower plaza in Los Angeles ran out of funds in 2019. Fast forward to 2024 and the Los Angeles City Council last Friday agreed to spend $3.8 to fence and begin cleanup of the abandoned real estate project that has been mainly used by graffiti artists and base jumpers since a Chinese development firm abandoned the build. And according to Fortune magazine, City Councilman Kevin DeLeon has said in recent council meetings that the nearly $4 million sum is just the beginning of a massive financial undertaking in the city. The original project was expected to cost the developer roughly $1 billion. However, Fortune magazine reported DeLeon said that, by conservative estimates, it would cost the city about $2 billion to take control of the abandoned project and complete it due to the now dilapidated state of the building and the repairs needed to finish the job. Hong Kong-based real estate developer China Oceanwide Holdings, the company that owned the project, is being liquidated 
after running out of funds to complete the project nearly five years ago. The towers are near the Crypto.com Arena, home of the LA Lakers, the Clippers, the Kings, etc., and location of this year's Grammys. Since the project was abandoned, the unfinished towers have become an attraction for graffiti artists who have tagged the visible portions of the 53-story tower, as well as base jumpers who have parachuted off the building. LA Mayor Karen Bass told a local television station this week that if the place is not boarded up quickly, a tragedy will take place there, and the owners should reimburse the city for every dime spent to secure the abandoned property. Some have argued the unfinished mixed-use building, located less than two miles from LA's Skid Road District, could and should be converted into low-income rental units to address LA's housing crisis. But experts say such a conversion might take years. Citing an article where Financial Times reporter Donald Spivak, a former member of LA's Community Redevelopment Agency, said of the project, being a near-term solution for the housing crisis is unrealistic. And it's not something where you could go in there, do a little patchwork, and open it up in six months. But of course, we all know what that means. Once the city has coughed up the taxpayer cash to clean up and secure the $2 billion property, the city will quietly sell off the property for pennies on the dollar to real estate developers who will be granted exceptions to local low-cost housing requirements and in a couple of years, graffiti towers will join the glut of half-empty luxury business and housing properties that already choke Los Angeles which will end yet another possible opportunity to address LA's growing homeless population. Tell me I'm wrong. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. In another all-too-American example of why Californians just can't have nice things, Republican lawmakers in Arizona have introduced a bill to ban guaranteed basic income programs. The bill would ban any county or municipality from offering unearned payments to residents. And of course, when it rains, Republicans in other states like Iowa and South Dakota have introduced similar bans. Republican lawmakers in Arizona are joining a chorus of conservatives across the country trying to ban Universal Basic Income Programs, or UBI, which offer residents no-strings-attached payments. So, Arizona state lawmakers introduced a bill that would ban any municipality or county from making payments to a person as part of a guaranteed basic income program. The law, House Bill 2375, describes a guaranteed income program as any program where someone receives payments that are unearned and can be used for any reason. Numerous cities across the country are experimenting with guaranteed basic income programs either through local initiatives or nonprofits. The programs typically provide monthly payments of $500 to $1,000 to low-income residents or families to spend however they want. And basic income programs have grown in popularity in recent years, spurred by a housing affordability crisis, a rising number of homeless people, fallout from the pandemic, and worries that robots and AI will replace many jobs. Most of these programs differ from the $1,000 a month universal basic income that former presidential candidate and businessman Andrew Yang campaigned on in 2016. In a universal basic income program, the government would supply everyone with a baseline payment. The guaranteed basic income programs sprouting up around the country, meanwhile, target specific segments of the population. These guaranteed basic income programs are less politically fraught than a universal basic income though they aren't without critics. The sponsors of the bill in Arizona, Representative Lupe Diaz, a Republican, has compared a guaranteed income to socialism, according to the Arizona Mirror. When speaking about the bill on Wednesday, Diaz specifically singled out a 2022 Phoenix area program that used federal COVID-19 funds to give a 1,000 low-income families $1,000 a month for a year, according to the outlet. The Phoenix City Council used $12 million in federal relief funds for the program, according to the Phoenix New Times. Families needed to earn less than 80% of the area's median income of $63,200 to qualify, according to the report. 
Other places, like Harris County, Texas, which includes Houston, have also used COVID-19 funds for guaranteed basic income programs. But now the Texas State Attorney General is weighing the constitutionality of that program after a Republican state lawmaker challenged it in January. Republican lawmakers elsewhere are also pushing back. Lawmakers in Iowa called basic income programs socialism on steroids, while introducing a similar bill to Arizona's that would ban such programs in that state. South Dakota is also considering a similar bill. Arizona State Rep. John Gillette, another Republican supporting the bill, argued that guaranteed basic income programs rob one to pay the other and could hurt already established social safety nets, according to the Arizona Mirror. Either way, the Arizona bill was read in the state legislature on Thursday, setting up another eventual red state, blue state political fight that probably didn't need to happen. KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Changing the meaning of having your day in court, since the pandemic, State Senator Tom Umberg has joined hundreds of thousands of California's lawyers, plaintiffs, defendants, and witnesses, and zoomed into court hearings. For Umberg, a practicing attorney and former federal prosecutor from Santa Ana, Using a remote video to help chip away at California's backlog court system has been undeniably beneficial for everyday Californians who have to go to court for one reason or another. Currently, they can log into their appearance on their phones or computers instead of taking a day off work to make the trip to the courthouse. Lawyers also can charge clients less when they don't have to bill them hundreds of dollars an hour to drive to and from court for routine procedural hearings that make up the bulk of a court's daily calendar. So, State Senator Tom Umberg wants to make remote court hearings permanent. But it's been frustrating to see the issue turn into a tedious annual fight in the California legislature, despite video hearings being wildly popular. In fact, 96% of people who've taken a survey after one of the more than 3.5 million remote court hearings since 2022 said they had a positive experience, according to the Judicial Council of California, of which State Senator Tom Umberg is a member. But rather than adopt a permanent law authorizing a remote video in court, each year since 2021, lawmakers have temporarily extended the pandemic-era video program for another year or two. The last extension is Senate Bill 92, which would allow criminal court proceedings to continue to be held via video for one more year. But if a law isn't passed, no remote video will be allowed in criminal courtrooms after December 31st, 2024. But the resistance to a permanent adoption of remote video court appearances comes primarily from the state's Public Defenders Association and from one of the state's most influential service unions, the Service Employees International Union of California, which represents around 15,000 trial court workers in 34 counties. SEIU's endorsements are highly sought after in Democratic election campaigns, as is the union's campaign cash. In fact, SEIU's state council and local affiliated unions have given more than $9.1 million to California's sitting legislators' election campaigns according to data from Open Secrets. Those opponents say they don't object to using video appearances in certain cases, particularly for routine procedural matters. But for more serious proceedings, they cite concerns about fairness to defendants and accuracy in the official court records in saying some areas don't have access to reliable internet, creating connectivity problems for those trying to zoom in. Court reporters say they worry about creating inaccurate transcripts when they can't clearly hear video, but more broadly, the opponent groups claim to worry about maintaining the integrity of the justice system. All this obscuring the more likely and pertinent question about court workers being worried about advances in video technology, AI, and transcription softwares eventually replacing their jobs. 
State Senator Tom Umberg said that to address those concerns and others, his pending legislation requires that a court reporter be present in the courtroom during a criminal hearing using remote video technology. And that court reporter can also pause hearings at any time if the audio is unclear. And of course, there is always the option where defendants can choose to attend hearings in person. The Judicial Council, the policy-making body of California's courts, supports Umberg's bill, saying the bill contains several provisions to protect the integrity of the system, including requiring witnesses to attend felony trials in person. And it gives judges the authority to order in-person court proceedings when it is appropriate. That was enough to sway Umberg's colleagues earlier this month on the Senate's Public Safety Committee, where it passed unanimously, even though some had reservations. So now, for Senate Bill 92, it's on to the Assembly, and then to Gavin Newsom's desk. And for the 15,000 trial court workers the SEIU represents, it's back to the drawing board to figure out the best balance of public good, modern technology, and organized labor. KPFK, 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. In good news for always drought-conscious California, the snowpack in the North Sierra is now back to average for the date. This is the first time this season that the water content in the snow has reached that benchmark. There is still a bit of ground to make up in the central and southern Sierra, but these regions have also seen big improvements since the start of last year. And according to the automated measurements reported by the Department of Water Resources, the snowpack water content is 100% of the average for the date in the North Sierra, 84% of the average in the Central Sierra, and 79% of the average in the South Sierra. So statewide, the snowpack is 86% of the average for the date and 69% of the average peak. Typically, the snowpack reaches its peak somewhere between the last week of March and first week of April. So for comparison, the statewide snowpack was just 28% of average on January 1st this year, but it had improved to 54% of the average by February 1st. Water managers rely on the snowpack when making decisions on water allocation for the year. In an average year, snowmelt accounts for a third of California's annual drinking water, so the recent California rain and snow can lead to improved water delivery forecasts. In the Valley, many locations are reporting above-average rainfall for the water year. Since October 1st, downtown Sacramento has seen 13.49 inches of rain. Stockton has had 9.88 inches of rain. And rain and snow have combined for 8.57 inches of precipitation in South Lake Tahoe bringing the average to this point in the season to 12.56 inches. And the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab site near Donner Summit is reporting 34.41 inches of precipitation this water year. That includes 211 inches of snowfall. So that site has seen 92% of the average snowfall to this point in the season, which has got to be welcome news for all Californians. Before we go back to KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles would like to remind you that we are in our February fun drive. So here we are, pausing for the cause as we enter the throes of another election season to let you know that, as always, we need your help. Because even with everything happening in the world, if you watch mainstream news on cable, you know that independent media that isn't enslaved to the corporate agenda is more important now than ever. Without voices like KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, the only things you'll hear are what America's owners want you to hear. And the only choices you have will be the ones those owners allow you to have. So please pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this one-of-a-kind LA station. 
Become a member of our Sustainer Circle by donating $25, $50, $100 or more and join the KPFK family. Think about it. KPFK is like the Hollywood Bowl, the Observatory, East L.A. or the Santa Monica Pier. It's that part of the very fabric of L.A. bringing you commercial-free and independent programming with voices you just don't hear anywhere else. Voices from the community, your community, the voices of people like you that will say what's on their minds instead of what some marketing department told them to say. Voices of opposition, peace, defiance, hope, resistance in a world that seeks to silence the truth and enforce conformity. So please, go to kpfk.org and donate what you can to help KPFK keep these airwaves independent and free. Pick up your phone and call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. And make your pledge today. Because as I always say, radio silence for a Los Angeles icon like KPFK would be a tragic loss for all of us. 90.7 KPFK, Los Angeles. From the Central Coast, KPFK's Marcy Winograd reports the dazzling Golita Beach is closed. Street vendors in Santa Barbara face new restrictions, and Raytheon is on trial. The Santa Barbara County Public Health Department has closed Golita Beach after 500,000 gallons of untreated sewage spilled into the Golita Slough during the recent rainstorm. What exactly was the problem? Recent storms damaged the main sewer line near the Santa Barbara airport. The affected area of Goleta Beach, usually a breathtaking spot on the coast, means no swimming or surfing, no contact period with the water until sample results show the water is safe for recreation. Otherwise, people risk disease. This is the second reported beach closure due to a recent sewage leak. Miramar Beach was closed after 2,500 gallons of sewage was released into Oak Creek. To put this in context, the biggest spill experienced in the city of Santa Barbara near Goleta Beach, well, the next city over, in the past 10 years was 24,000 gallons, most of it, most of it rainwater. This took place last year during the torrential storms of late January and February. During those historic rain events, Peak flows exceeded normal flow volume by a factor of 500%, according to the city. Typical normal peak flow for the city's sewage system is 5 million gallons a day. During peak flows, it hit 30 million. The city of Ojai experienced a far more devastating spill last winter, reporting 14 million gallons of spilled sewage. City pipes found themselves undercut by the Ventura River, then flowing at record volumes. Again, most of that volume was made up of rainwater. According to the city of Santa Barbara's water czar, that's Joshua Hagmark, the big story here is how much rainwater gets illegally diverted into the city's sewage system. He says property owners should never use the public sewer to remove rainwater from their property. All roof drains and area drains should drain to the street or local storm drain systems. He says these flows are often the leading cause of spills and damage to the sewer system. In most cases, Hagmark noted, this typically happens when there are drainage issues, getting the water to the street or storm drain. Newshawk reports the Santa Barbara City Council recently approved some changes to the city's sidewalk vendor ordinance. The changes include requiring street and sidewalk vendors to have a valid California driver's license, identification card, or other form of government ID. The changes also prohibit a vendor from selling on private property unless the vendor has permission from the property owner. In addition, vendors without a license may have their equipment impounded and then billed by the city. If the owner doesn't pick up the cart within 60 days, the cart is forfeited to the city. The city takes ownership of the cart. What happens to the cart after that? Not clear. Assistant City Attorney John Doimus said the changes were designed to clean up the ordinance. The city adopted a sidewalk vending ordinance in March of 2022, but then spent the past year figuring out which issues it needed to address in the ordinance. Doimus says there are 18 licensed vendors within the city. Others say there are more people than that who are vending without a license. Raytheon Technologies in Goleta, the local office for RTX, 
The manufacturer of lethal weapons, fighter jets, cluster bombs, bunker busters for Israel's assault on Gaza is on trial in Santa Barbara Superior Court in a discrimination and harassment lawsuit. Who is suing? 61-year-old Karen Varnish, a former controller and finance manager at the company's Goleta office. She says she was paid a lot less, a lot, than her male counterparts, including at least one of her subordinates. Why? Because of her age and gender, she says. After Renish lodged formal complaints about the discrepancy, she claims she was subjected to intense retaliation from Raytheon leadership that caused her severe emotional distress and an early retirement. This after a 35-year career at the War Profiteer. Vranish wants $4.4 million in past and future earnings losses, as well as punitive damages. How much? That's up to the jury if she prevails at trial. Raytheon has denied the allegations. This is not the first time, though, that Raytheon has been accused of discrimination and harassment. The Black Fire Marshal for Raytheon's Environmental Services Department claimed a fellow employee placed a photo of a gorilla at his workstation on multiple occasions. This is at the Goleta office. When the fire marshal told the company bosses, he said Raytheon redefined his job duties, basically demoting him. The case settled last year for an undisclosed amount of money. Bringing Vranish's case to trial has been a long process, according to the Santa Barbara Independent. Raytheon repeatedly refused to produce documents the court demanded, prompting the judge to level nearly $40,000 in sanctions against Raytheon and its attorneys. Santa Barbara-based Shelterbox is responding to the humanitarian crisis in Gaza by sending in vital supplies through a partner in the Middle East. Shelterbox will support thousands of people displaced by Israel, its genocide, with water-resistant tarps, rope, and other essential items so people can make temporary repairs to their damaged homes. The supplies will help keep the buildings watertight, protect them from wet weather and winter cold. The aid packets also include kitchen sets, water carriers, and hygiene items, toothbrushes, diapers. Shelterbox is partnering with Medical Aid for Palestine, MAP, a non-political, non-sectarian humanitarian relief organization. It's based in London. Shelterbox partnered with them previously for responses to Israeli genocide in Gaza. In Santa Barbara on Chumash land, I'm Marcy Winograd for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Another day of deep disappointment for Gaza Thursday at the UN Security and also a glimmer of hope in an apparent move towards unity in the Arab response. And Don DeBar has more. A pair of reports presented to the UN Security Council Thursday were insufficient, particularly with respect to their representation of the suffering being endured by people in Gaza. That, according to Riyad Mansour, who is Palestine's permanent observer at the United Nations. Following Thursday's Security Council session, he spoke outside the chamber to the press. Well, uh, you listened to the statement of the president of the Security Council. Of course, it was short of expectation. It did not refer specifically uh, to the looming catastrophe over Rafah. And of course, there was no reference to ceasefire. But nevertheless, the effort by uh, almost 14 members of the Security Council is appreciated. Let me also just say that we listened in the debate to the briefing of uh, Christopher uh, Lockyer. It was a moving statement. It uh, affected all those who listened to it whether inside the council and outside the council, and we appreciate the statements and all of the work of uh, Doctors Without Borders. And all humanitarian organizations on the ground, led by UNRWA and the brave ones, the 13,000 brave ones staff of UNRWA, which is uh, basically, if not the only, the main organization that is capable of carrying the decisions 
and resolutions of the Security Council and the international community to transfer humanitarian assistance to every corner inside the Gaza Strip, north, south, east, and west. We appreciate the work of all of these agencies led by UNRWA, which is indispensable, and it should be protected, and it should be funded. funded. Yesterday, after the veto, I said to you we will have an Arab group meeting at the level of ambassadors, which we did. And we came to the conclusions after 140 days in which a single member in the Security Council refused to uh, accept the call of hundreds of millions in the streets in every corner of the globe and almost all members of the Security Council other than that one and the huge number in the General Assembly and beyond. Therefore, what we discussed, business as usual is not going to be the order of the day for us moving forward. And also bearing in mind the, uh, the decision by the Israeli Knesset a day or two days ago by 99 members denying the Palestinian people their natural and legal right of statehood as part of exercising self-determination in which not Israel, not anyone will deal with that issue except the Palestinian people themselves in exercising part of their uh, right to self-determination. It's only us, the Palestinian people, who will determine our right to self-determination, including the independence of our state. We will not negotiate that principle with anyone, and we will not ask for permission from anyone to do so. We will not be the exception to the rule. All nations that exercise their right to self-determination to put an end to colonialism uh, did it only alone without asking for permission from anyone or negotiating that principle with anyone. It goes back even all the way to 1776 when the 13 colonies decided to become independent, they did not negotiate that with the colonial power England, nor they asked for permission from them. As it was done by the United States, it will be done by the Palestinian people likewise. But having all these things in mind, we will expedite the process of one in the General Assembly of taking, asking the international community to take practical measures to force Israel and those who are shielding it to stop the fighting immediately. Practical measures such as, but not only that, to ask countries not to send or sell weapons and ammunition to Israel, to ask countries not to give visas to the settlers' communities and the settlers not only for settlers to have sanctions, uh, 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 sanctions against them and other measures that I am not at liberty to uh, share with you now in the General Assembly, but there will be a host of practical measures that we will start advocating for them. And when we legislate soon in the General Assembly, a new resolution it will contain, beside calling for a ceasefire, these practical measures, because the occupying authority that is defying everyone, defying international law, defying the ICJ by refusing to implement the provisional measures that the ICJ asked for, the six of them, then that country that behaves in that manner should face consequences in the international community, including in the General Assembly. In the Security Council, the resolution in the Knesset of two days ago should be rejected in practical way, and we will begin the process of marching to the Security Council for the admission of the State of Palestine. It was the international community that decided to create two states in Palestine since 1947. It is the duty of the international community 
along with the Palestinian people to complete that exercise by admitting the state of Palestine to membership. We began the discussions of such steps. We will intensify these discussions and we will use a variety of things, including we might have a statement and solicit signature from member states welcoming and, and uh, supporting the admission of the state of Palestine to membership before, in fact, going to the Security Council and to submit a resolution calling for recommendation to admit the state of Palestine to the membership of the United Nations. In the General Assembly, most likely we will hear a debate in the Security Council soon about why a, a veto was casted. And also, in the same time, we will be uh, uh, mobilizing for the practical measures that should be adopted. And then when we move to the point of resuming the 10th emergency session and producing a resolution, it will contain some of the element of what was vetoed, but the practical measures also will be reflected in them. Now we are entering a different stage than the 140 40 days, going to the Security Council veto, going to the resumed session and voting on the same resolution. And Israel and who is shielding, shielding Israel are not changing the course. Perhaps these, this different uh, approach might increase the pressure on them and to force them to accept to have a ceasefire in place before this looming catastrophe over Rafah from happening. We were hoping that the Security Council in that press release or statement that they read to you, that to include the position that was reflected unanimously inside the chamber of warning Israel from not taking steps in the direction of Rafah to be included in that press statement. Unfortunately, it was not. We regret that. But nevertheless, we have to do what we should do. It is different than what we've been doing so far in order to save Rafah from that looming catastrophe and in order to have a ceasefire in place immediately because only ceasefire would allow for all these things to happen. Thank you. For KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. Yemen has warned the European Union against any military intervention to protect Israeli vessels in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. Meanwhile, Sana'a has also reiterated its pledge to keep the shipping routes safe for the international maritime navigation. Press TV's Abdul Latif Al-Washali reports. In response to the European Union's naval mission in the Red Sea, Yemen's Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs Hossein Al-Azzi held a press conference addressing Yemen's stance on the tensions in the region. He urged EU members to withdraw their warships from the Red Sea, emphasizing that militarization of the region will only escalate the conflict. Certainly, we will deal with any country who engages in hostilities against us, and we will deal with it as we dealt with the U.S. and the U.K. We are keen to treat everyone equally and will never allow the European Union or others to attack Yemen without getting a firm response. Whoever harms Yemen, we will harm him severely. Al-Azzi noted that since the start of the Yemeni army's naval operations, over 5,000 vessels, including European ones, have safely passed through the Bab al-Mandab Strait after coordinating with Yemeni authorities. He also reaffirmed the safety of international maritime navigation for the entire world except for those who carry out hostile actions against Yemen. The recent move by France targeting Yemeni drones is up for discussion. We have serious questions regarding the matter and we expect Paris to provide us with reasonable explanation. If France does not apologize and we are certain that Paris is following the British and American approach, we will respond because we have the right to self-defense. 
what is being practiced against American and British ships is due to their aggression against our country and their complicity in the ongoing genocide in Gaza. Yemeni army has not targeted any European ships in its recent operations in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. However, the European Union has launched the naval mission Aspidus to counter potential attacks on American, British and Israeli-linked vessels. Observers believe that the U.S. is dragging European countries into a direct war with the Yemeni army to protect its own interests in the region. They assert that an EU military intervention will impact the shipping of food and fuel to Europe, thereby destabilizing European countries. These are terribly tough times for the critically injured Palestinians waiting for permission to travel abroad to get the necessary medical treatment. Press TV correspondent Mote Abu Musabe has this report. Israeli regime is still committing atrocities against the besieged Gaza Strip with American-made weapons. Endless number of bombs has been raining on the Strip for more than four successive months with Gaza's health sector admitting a tremendous number of the Palestinian casualties. One should take into account the Gaza medical infrastructure, which is devastated due to 17 years of siege and also the systematic Israeli attacks that besides the delayed permissions issued for the injured Palestinians in need of traveling outside Gaza Strip, has exacerbated the already catastrophic conditions. We fled our house in Al-Buraji camp to Deir al-Balah 40 days ago. We were targeted in a house for no reason. Many members of the family got killed over the attack. My father was among those injured. As you can see, he has severe burns all over his body. We're still waiting for the permission to travel abroad to get the needed medical care. We appeal to whoever is able to help us get permission for my father to travel. His condition is critical and I don't want to lose him. According to Gaza's health ministry, hundreds of injured Palestinians, including men, women and children, lost their lives due to that delay. While thousands are facing imminent death due to serious wounds they sustained in Israeli attacks, even those who managed to survive have one or more of their limbs amputated. The number of the injured Palestinians is four times the capacity of hospitals, and this number is dramatically increasing over the constant Israeli airstrikes. We have at least 11,000 people injured in the Gaza Strip. Only in this hospital, 2,100 need an urgent permission to travel. The main obstacle is that receiving the approval for any case could take days or weeks. As a result, many might lose their life while waiting for the permission. We demand all relevant parties to set more effective mechanisms that help to rescue the people here. It's not worthy that the problem also includes the Palestinian patients with the chronic diseases and those in need of urgent surgeries. I am Dr. Khaled Al-Saidni working at the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital since 2001. At the start of this aggression, I felt pain in my right leg. I found that my arteries were 80% blocked. Knowing that I'm a diabetic patient, my fellows told me that I needed an urgent permission to travel abroad to undergo a surgery before my health deteriorated and had my leg amputated. I have contacted and appealed all relevant parties to hasten the permission because time is really decisive. And as you can see, I have been waiting for the permission for about two months with no response. Having approached with the people inside any health facility in Gaza Strip is enough to wrench your heart when you see the injured children and their parents imploring for travel permission. Now the question for the Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip remains unanswered that who bears the responsibility for this delay that threatens the life of many injured Palestinians in Gaza Strip? Nigerians are facing one of the West African countries' worst economic crises in years as the currency has fallen to a record low and soaring inflation. The situation has provoked anger and protests across the country. Danjuma Abulahi reports from Abuja. Shoppers at the popular Wuse market in Abuja, the Nigerian capital, are having tough times a skyrocketing rise in the prices of commodities has taken a heavy toll on ordinary people. Prices of commodities, especially food items, have gone up more than 100% and indeed they've continued to rise on a daily basis. Cost of living is something else. It's terrible. 
a common man with a salary of 30,000 cannot buy a bag of rice of almost 80,000 naira. There is hunger, terrible hunger, and high rise of stealing, thieves, everything just keep going higher. Bag of cement, it's like about 9,000, he just bought it. I said, wow, 9,000, where are we going? Bag of rice, 77,000. Experts say, apart from the economic policy of devaluing the Nigerian currency, removal of multiple exchange rate windows has further weakened the naira against the dollar, resulting in inflation and harsh economic woes to the people. They said grinding poverty has created a sense of hopelessness in an already impoverished population, pushing many people to the edge. IMF said we should devalue, we are devaluing. But what are the consequences of this on the economy, on the purchasing power parity that has even existed before now? We made money during the windfall when oil was at the price of oil was at its peak in the international uh, oil market. But what did we do with this among us amount that we made? It was frittered away through corruption. Experts also say at inception on 29 May 2023, the new government in Nigeria removed the subsidy on petrol which pushed the prices of petrol up, resulting in the rise of goods and services, which further made things worse for the poor in Nigeria. But they said there are immediate solutions that can bring relief. Nigeria is for Nigerians. So every Nigerian should benefit. So if the people want subsidy, they should reinstate that very particular subsidy. Or we fix our refineries. It's even dubious that today we are producing oil, but we subject the sales of our oil to American dollar, price them in dollar. Pockets of protests over the economic hardship have started springing up in some Nigerian cities. Meanwhile, the Nigerian Labour Congress has called for a two-day nationwide strike on 27 and 28 February in protests over the rising cost of living. The Nigerian government has promised to take proactive steps to mitigate the economic problems people are facing. Experts, however, say the government should first solve the persistent insecurity in Nigeria to be able to focus on agriculture for food security. They also say human capacity must be developed so that the Nigerian population becomes an asset instead of a liability. And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'm Paulina Vasilyev. In your KPFK's Rebel Alliance calendar, Mad Magic and 90.7 FM KPFK present various exciting youth music bands, poets, speakers, and vendors. Location, KPFK 90.7 FM, 3729 Coinga Boulevard, West North Hollywood, California. The event starts at 4 p.m. Tickets are $15 and $10 with student ID. Thursday, February 29th at 7.30 p.m., there will be an album release performance of before the Ghosts and the Rains by the James Report Band. The event will take place at Collage at 731 South Pacific Avenue in San Pedro. Tickets are $25. Call 310-561-7811 for more information. On Sunday, March the 5th, there will be a commemoration in San Pedro of the 100th anniversary of the murderous attack by the KKK of an IWW labor hall. The attack in 1924, which ended the Wobblies in San Pedro, was followed by the building of a large KKK headquarters nearby. Both sites will be visited at the event. The history discussed and the re-envisioning of the spaces proposed. City Councilman of CD15, Tim McCosker, and Vice President of the Harbor Commission, Diane Middleton, will speak at the event. The March 5th event begins at 1 p.m. at 12th and Center Street at the Wobbly Hall site. The one-mile procession and re-envisioning discussion will end at 3 p.m. Bring walking shoes. For more information, contact event organized by San Pedro Neighbors for Peace and Justice. Also on March 5th, Californians will vote on Proposition 1. The ballot measure, if passed, will allow the states to divert funds raised for non-coercive mental health care to housing and other behavioral health programs, including involuntary confinement. Many mental health advocates believe that while the measure is being marketed as the latest panacea to address homelessness, it is actually a taxpayer giveaway to private industry and will shrink proven programs. 
Last year, a comprehensive UCSF study found that homelessness is not caused by serious mental illness or substance abuse disorders, but by high rents, low incomes, and sudden loss of income. Susan Shannon has worked with homeless and low-income communities since 2005 and currently serves as the L.A. City Health Commissioner representing City Council District 14. She is also Executive Director for the nonprofit Poverty Matters. Registration is now open for the first-ever Adaptive Sports Fair. Embrace inclusivity, diversity, and the power of adaptive sports for special needs kids. Whether you're an athlete, a supporter, or just curious, this event is for everyone. Let's break down barriers and celebrate the joy of sports together. Put on by Playmakers, SoCal Adaptive Sports, the Long Beach City College Foundation, and Long Beach City College to bring this event to Long Beach on April 13th, 2024 at Long Beach City College from 10 a.m. to 2. To register, go to eventbrite.com and look for Long Beach Adapted Sports Fair. We're coming to the end of our show, but before we sign off on this Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, I'll ask you one more time to pick up the phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Become a member of our sustainer circle and join the KPFK family by donating $25, $50, or more. Real Public Radio for Southern California, the only place that can broadcast a message that is not approved by America's corporate owners. So please pick up your phone and dial 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-5735. Or go online to kpfk.org and donate to this iconic, one-of-a-kind L.A. radio station. Help us keep KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles on the air by picking up your phones and calling 818-985-5735. Again, 818-985-5735. Or go to our website at kpfk.org and donate today, and thank you. This has been your Friday edition of KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. I'd like to thank our engineer, Wendell Handy, and tonight's Rebel Alliance contributors, Marcy Winograd, Don DeBar, and Paulina Vasiliev, and of course, our show's producer, Zary Rideau. KPFK's Rebel Alliance News will be back on Monday, but stay tuned, because coming up next, it's Soul Rebel Radio. Have a great weekend, Rebels. From the hashtag New Cal Exit YouTube channel, Red Star Report, I'm Hal Lore for KPFK's Rebel Alliance News. Coming up this week on LA Theatre Works, Darius McReel is bright, well-spoken, and charismatic. But is this recently pardoned ex-con electable? I was there the night Patrick Cragen got shot. What do you mean you were there? I was present. At the murder? Yeah. Eric Stoltz and Chris Butler star in McReel by Stephen Belber. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. That's this Sunday evening from 10 p.m. until midnight. L.A. Theatre Works right here on KPFK. Support comes from UCLA's Center for the Art of Performance, presenting Magos Herrera on Saturday, March 9 at 8 p.m. at UCLA Nimoy Theater. A Latin American jazz vocalist, Herrera sings in Spanish, English, and Portuguese, blends in contemporary jazz with Mexican folk staples and Latin American melodies and rhythms. For more information and tickets at CAP. .ucla.edu and KPFK Pra cantar, pra samba, pra valer, pra This radio station, KPFK, is now over 64 years old and has persisted in fulfilling its mission as an independent, non-commercial community radio institution. In those 64 years, KPFK has provided rich media opportunities for many to participate and contribute to a lasting understanding between nations, 
and between the individuals of all nations, races, creeds, and colors. KPFK's work is carried on by each new generation of radio practitioners and listener sponsors, and they are aware that at the end of the day, no one person or group is more important to KPFK than the institution itself. And KPFK will not succumb to any one crisis or challenge. We've weathered many a storms over the years, and with your help, we'll continue well into the future. Please, ensure KPFK's longevity by making your pledge now at kpfk.org forward slash donate or call 818-985-5735. That's 818-985-KPFK. Thank you. Hello, this is Martin Sheen.